Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There's a lot to uh, unpack on this story. Scott Newark is with us, former Alberta Crown Attorney, Policy Advisor to a Federal and Ontario Minister for Public Safety and former Vice Chair for the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Scott is a good friend of this program. How are you, Scott? Good, thank you. And uh, Mike Lake, Conservative Member of Parliament from Edmonton, father of a 27-year-old autistic son. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great, Roy. And I, I want to I want to introduce this now. Um, from the convicted child sex trafficker living in an, a center for autistic youth to another chapter in the ugly scenario surrounding Paul Bernardo's transfer to Quebec medium security prison to privacy rights for convicted criminals. What must and can be done to make Canada's justice system responsive to the needs and expectations of Canadians? Now, on this story about the center uh, where autistic children and children were supposed to be being cared for, um, a convicted sex offender living at the... Uh, at uh, the address of this particular Center for Kids on the autism spectrum, he and his wife, who owned the business, or owns it, I guess, they've been charged with human trafficking, in a human trafficking investigation. The uh, individual's name is Lauriston Maloney and his wife, Amber Maloney. And uh, the offenses that they've been charged with include recruiting, exercising control, exploitation, assault, forcible confinement, and financial benefit from committing a crime. Um, Mr. Maloney has said it's ridiculous that he's being charged with this. So police are investigating and uh, charges are going to be moving forward or have been late. I'm not sure which one it is. Mike, let me start with you. You're the father of an autistic young man, 27 years of age. You've been on this program talking about your son uh, on a number of occasions Without specifically getting at this at this case in, in Ontario, how vulnerable are autistic young people? They're, they're very vulnerable. Um, you know, Jaden, uh, you know, when I think about Jaden, of course, autism is a spectrum, so not everybody who has a diagnosis of autism is exactly like Jaden, but, uh, you know, Jaden is incredibly authentic. He loves people. He's very trusting uh, with people, um, and uh, and and you layer in the fact that he has a lot of difficulties. He's non-speaking, so he isn't able to communicate um, exactly what he's feeling, exactly what's happening, even in ways that he can communicate through writing or or typing on his iPhone. Um, he doesn't communicate abstract things like pain or danger or or those types of things, and so. Um, in a situation like we're talking about here, uh, someone like Jaden would be incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. What was your reaction to this story? At first, I mean, at first, like I think most people, um, real intense anger and frustration, I think some disbelief, I think trying to figure out, and I think we're still trying to figure out what happened in this situation and how it got to to uh, where, where it is, and then I think what what's happened is a, a transition, maybe not even a transition, maybe just an addition of uh, 
have a lot of sympathy as I've, as I've listened to parents' comments and really considered what it would be like for the parents in that circumstance. Um, just a, an incredible sympathy for both the parents and for the, the, the kids with autism uh, at the centre um, because they would be going through all of the emotions that the rest of us are going through times a, a thousand. Scott, what, what's, uh, what's your response to all of this, to the story and the issues surrounding it? Well, let me first of all say, Roy, uh, there's some uh, technical problems. I'm having a very hard time hearing you guys. So if you could maybe check with that. But if assuming you can hear me, um, when I first saw this story, I think the thing that jumped out at me was this was an OPP uh, uh, public alert, which is uh, only possible under the Police Services Act of Ontario. And there's got to be a legal standard that's met. And they put this thing out, and then they, you know, and they identify correctly that this guy's got a history of child sex offenses, two separate conviction uh, series of convictions, and uh, but they say that you know, uh, oh yeah, but he has the convictions or the sentences are over, and there are no restrictions on him specifically pertaining to his behavior. So you know, he has charter rights that need to be protected. And I thought, what the heck is that? You know, or are we delved into politically correct policing? And, you know, why wouldn't they use a tool that, you know, uh, we were involved in uh, developing preventive reconnaissances? Because if you meet the legal criteria to release this kind of a uh, statement, public statement, you almost certainly would uh, meet the uh, criteria to get a preventive reconnaissance, which, the breach of which, by the way, uh, is a criminal offense. And the, you can put conditions on that say, you know, you're not allowed to be around children. Okay, you may, will remember, I'm sure, this is something that Ontario brought in originally uh, after the uh, Christopher Stevenson case when we lost track of uh, Joe Fredericks. And it took us years to convince the feds to do it. But we made this change, you know, changes. And as I look at this, I'm going, why are we using the tools in our toolbox? And then the next day, the Ontario Solicitor General's office issues a, a statement that is very condemning of what's taken place and how this was actually done. And they said that, you know, uh, this is a failure of the justice system and that the guy's wife was um, uh, had not followed the appropriate regulatory procedures in uh, dealing, with, you know, to get the uh, uh, permit to run the place. Uh, the, the guy did uh, some uh, media and some of the uh, um, uh, family members of the uh, the children attending the center were interviewed. And the next day, guess what? They both get charged. Yeah, now, it's just a, this is what we used to define as suspicion of being suspicious. Uh, I'm, I think that, you know, we'll, as, as this case evolves, we'll find out as, as, as to whether or not there was a larger plan involved in some of this about seeing if they could get this guy into doing things that would reveal stuff so they could now charge him. Okay, you, you and I, you and I, Scott... We don't use the tools in the toolbox. You and I are going to talk more broadly about justice in a couple of minutes, but uh, Mike, uh, a final thought. I know that this is an, an issue that I asked you to speak about. I know you walked away from uh, a function, uh, local function that, uh, that you're attending to talk to us for, for a few minutes. So just give us a final thought on, 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 on what you see needs to be done. And if you want to cross the line a little bit into your, into your role as a federal legislator, a federal member of parliament, please do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think at a broad level, 
um, there's a lot to understand about this this particular case. But at a broad level, we have to remember that when it comes to rights, um, you know, it's it's not just the rights of the people who commit the crimes that matter. You know, we have to we have to protect victims. Our our public safety system, our criminal justice system, needs to protect victims, and it needs to minimize the number of victims. So it needs to protect the broad public, um, people who are vulnerable. This case highlights um, the extent to which there is, uh, to use the the language that's been used uh, this past week, a failure of the system. And we need to be, as elected officials at all levels of government, taking a look at a system that minimizes the impact on 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 victims and and protects the the public more broadly and uh, I will say this as a sort of closing comment on the specific case I, I've seen in the media that um, uh, that there's no with the new charges that there's no specific indication that the victim in this case uh, is someone at the at the center one of the, the kids with autism at the center but as a parent, I try to imagine what it would be like to be, you know, to have my son in that in that system. And if there was something going on, Jaden wouldn't be able to articulate that to me. Yeah, and so I just can't imagine what those families are going through right now with this news and trying to navigate that news in terms of the conversation and relationships they're having with their with their loved ones. Mike, like, thank you for joining us. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. A listener asked this question. I'm not sure I can answer it. Why does Bernardo have access to parole when he's designated as a dangerous offender? Because that's the law. Is it after he served 25 years? No, that's a different uh, uh, parole eligibility date for persons convicted of murder or first-degree murder. But a dangerous offender designation, it's a life designation, but there's an eligibility for parole period set at seven years. So even though he's set as a dangerous offender, and even though he's, he's, uh, he's convicted of mass murder and he's sentenced to life in prison, he can, he, could he then have uh, requested a parole hearing seven years into his sentence? No, because it would, that would have been overruled by the parole ineligibility from the murder convictions. But he was eligible, and he did apply for parole. He's applied. I've done some research into this. He's applied uh, two times, once in 2018 and once in uh, 2021, uh, when he was entitled to. And by the way, under our current stupid laws, uh, oops, um, he's able to apply every two years. And that's another thing that needs to be changed is that the board that turns him down, as they did, like, blatantly in describing his danger to the public, uh, should be able to say, and by the way, uh, you're not eligible to apply for parole again until, say, 10 years. That used to be the law in relation to, if you remember, the faint hope clause. I remember it well. If it was turned down, where you got let out after 15 years, um, and if it was... uh, uh, not accepted by the jury, the jury could also make a recommendation to say, and oh yeah, you got another 10 years left because it was only after 15 that you could apply. Um, you can't apply until, you know, whatever the time period was. And I was involved in a case out in Saskatchewan that was uh, about that. Um, but that's something that also needs to be done. It's something we could change relatively easily, and it would have, if it's done carefully and done by allowing it to be done not mandatorily, but by with discretion, um, 
in, uh, in my opinion, there's absolutely no question that that would be uh, constitutionally okay, so, valid, charter so, valid. So let me ask you this. What disturbs you about the rationale employed by Ann Kelly and Correctional Service Canada in the moving of Bernardo uh, to Quebec and, and the excuses they provided or the rationale they provided? And, uh, and, and uh, Tim Danson wanted to know, he said, really interesting that they did this just months before he has a parole hearing. But what's your sense of this? Uh, the 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 uh, the explanation they tried to provide. Yeah. It's the cultural attitudes that you and I have experienced at Correctional Service of Canada over decades. The arrogance, and that was on full display when Commissioner Kelly was doing her uh, uh, media so-called briefing. The lack of any real accountability. The we know best about everything attitude. And uh, but just by the way, I mean I I, I believe I said it to you as well too. When she did her uh, briefing on Thursday this week, um, they released an executive summary. I think it was like seven or eight pages of the report that was described as being, I believe, 83 pages. And I thought, well, where's the real, the full report? And you know what? I was looking this morning, and it was an article that was written by somebody, and it was uh, late yesterday afternoon, that apparently the full report had been disclosed. Why would you wait that long? Okay? And... Guess what? It turns out that the report was given to the correctional uh, commissioner uh, on uh, June the 26th. So what, why were they holding on to it for so long? Oh, and guess what? Yet another example of something. Uh, this was not an independent investigation. They were investigating themselves. It's that lack of institutional accountability uh, and, I think, integrity. Uh, and they follow their own rules about things because they say they know best about everything, and anybody that might challenge that, you know, uh, is therefore challenging their uh, expertise. Yeah, because, you All know, one of the things... to be exposed and acted upon. Scott, one of the things that they say that at La Macaza, yeah. that they have the appropriate programs to deal with and treat sexual offenders. Well, this guy was a serial killer. Yeah, and, and Roy, not only that... Um, this guy, apparently, when you go delve into the details, and I, I, I let me just tell you, and I'm going to make this recommendation. I think this is something that, for example, the Public Safety Committee in the House of Commons should not just let go yeah. with this uh, look the other way, brush it off okay. uh, internal report. Okay, buddy. Because when you dig into it, there are all sorts of alarming factual details as well. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.